let me just uh, go ahead and dive into where we are tonight because I've got a lot of ground to cover. I was looking through my notes before tonight and I thought, how in the world? Ain't no way I'm going to get through it. <laughs> but that's okay because here's where we are in our study through Revelation. We've come to chapter 6. And really, the end of chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 6, I think that it, it, it allows us for sort of a, a timeout because I believe that the events that are described beginning in chapter 6 going all the way through chapter 19 of Revelation cover events that will happen during the tribulation period. Now, again, I've told you that as I'm working through Revelation, I hold to a dispensational, premillennial understanding of end times. And yet, I realize that there are other viewpoints. And many of you maybe have friends. You've, you've, you've heard some Bible teacher somewhere along the way who maybe approached prophecy and the book of Revelation from a little bit of a different perspective. And you wonder, where in the world is that person coming from? Because that doesn't sound like what I've heard. And just so you know, issues related to prophecy and eschatology, you remember that word we talked about last week, it just refers to the doctrine of last things. In Christian theology, you've got, you've got primary doctrine, cardinal doctrine, cardinal truths that everyone who's a Christian must believe and, and hold to the same viewpoint. For example, the deity of Christ, is that negotiable or non-negotiable? Non-negotiable. The virgin birth, negotiable, non-negotiable. It's non-negotiable. Okay? Bodily resurrection of Jesus, negotiable or non-negotiable? It's non-negotiable. These are cardinal truths of the Christian faith. And anything different on any of those issues is, is heresy and not Christian. The doctrine of the Trinity. God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, who has eternally existed in three persons. Is that negotiable or non-negotiable? It's non-negotiable. Okay? Now, things like ecclesiology, how church is structured. You've got different forms of church government. You've got congregationalism. You've got Presbyterian forms of church government, elder rule. Uh, you have... Differing viewpoints, and so a lot of the, why there's a lot of denominational differences in, in, in Christianity is because some people interpret things a bit differently as to how the church is to be structured. Okay? Is that negotiable or non-negotiable? Negotiable. Okay? Right? I'm, listen, I'll be honest. I'm, I'm Baptist born, Baptist bred. When I die, I'll be Baptist dead. But I can have fellowship with Presbyterian brother or sister. Okay, eschatology is another one of these issues where we've got what's non-negotiable is the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again, right? That's, that's, that's cardinal truth. Now, some of the details as it relates to prophecy, things like the timing of the rapture, uh, issues related to the millennial kingdom, uh, you've got the premillennial view, which I hold to, which I believe is scriptural. The scriptural view teaches that Christ's return will happen prior to his literal 1,000-year reign upon the earth. 
You say, why is it a thousand-year reign? Well, because Revelation chapter 20, which I hold to a literal interpretation of, says as much. And yet, there are those who are amillennial in their understanding, and they see that millennial reference in Revelation 20 is sort of symbolic of the age in which we currently live, the church age. And they see that the enemy, that Satan, he's already bound, to which I say to my millennial friends, if he's, ba- he's bound to me, I'm telling you, because it seems like everywhere I go, he's there somewhere on the attack. Okay? But these are non-negotiable, so I think that it's helpful for us if you understand why I'm holding to a dispensational premillennial understanding of Revelation. I think that it will help you a lot, especially as you interact with people who may hold to some different viewpoints. Now, most Baptists, I would imagine, hold to a premillennial understanding, at least historically, that's kind of where we've shaken out. So, again, tonight we're just going to work through some stuff I think that will help us in terms of interpretation, and it really will just help us set the stage for what lies ahead in our study as we continue our way through the book of Revelation. So, I'm not really going to be in any one particular passage tonight. Uh, If you want to find somewhere in your Bible, go to the book of Daniel, because I'm probably going to speak from Daniel a little bit more than anything else tonight, okay? So... Again, what we believe about the future impacts how we live presently. So we're talking about bringing the future into focus. Sort of this parenthesis study that we're in, really two or three weeks worth of studies, we're talking about bringing the future into focus. And why is that important? Well, it's because what we believe about the future impacts how we live presently. And, and I sort of emphasized the importance of this uh, last Wednesday night. But as far as the future is concerned, keep in mind that the future, it's not so much a matter of knowing what. And I think a lot of times we really want to know what as far as details. And as far as what the Lord wants us to know, I believe he's revealed and has made it plain in his word. But beyond knowing what, The future is a matter of knowing who. And prophecy is not so much given so that we can have all of our charts filled in, which I say that tongue-in-cheek because I actually have some charts that I'm going to give you tonight. And I didn't give it to you initially because I want to give it an explanation before you see it, okay? Um, And so sometimes charts are helpful in that kind of thing. But prophecy, for the most part, is important because it reminds us of this critical truth that our God is sovereign over history. And he is the architect of history. He's bringing history to a conclusion. And it's not spiraling into chaos, but it's under his perfect control. So again, it's necessary for us to consider some issues that are really important and pertain to prophecy in general, especially as it relates to interpretation. How is it that various people come to different places as far as their interpretation of Bible prophecy? How does someone come to an amillennial viewpoint? How does someone come to a premillennial viewpoint? Uh, what's, what's the difference between dispensationalism and covenant theology and those kinds of things? Well, I don't want to get into the weeds, but I do want to give you just a little bit of information We'll get into it tonight and especially next Wednesday night. Um, 
let me just fast forward. Eschatology, this is the word that refers to the doctrine of last things. Comes from a Greek word that means last or final. And so eschatology refers to prophecy and events related to the last period of history before the end. And it refers to the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises concerning Messiah and his kingdom. Now, to a large degree, the viewpoint that a person holds as far as eschatology, whether they're amillennial, premillennial, whether they're dispensational in their understanding or covenant in their understanding, a lot of that is how they've interpreted many of those Old Testament promises that are made to Israel. Those who come to amillennial conclusions see all of that as being fulfilled in the church. All the promises that were made to Israel in the Old Testament, promises about land, promises about a future kingdom, a Davidic king, they see all of this as pointing to Jesus, but fulfilled ultimately in Jesus and the church. Now, I would agree it is fulfilled in Jesus, but in no way does that mean that it, there's not going to be a future literal fulfillment in which Jesus, as the son of David, is going to be ruling and reigning from a literal throne in a kingdom that he establishes upon the earth? And so when you think about all of the promises that the Old Testament mentions concerning the first coming of Jesus, did you know that those were fulfilled literally? Think about where he has been born. Uh, think about uh, to whom he has been born, a virgin. All of that, that was a literal promise that was made. And we know that it's been fulfilled in real time, real history, Okay. So why are we to assume that those future promises that have yet to be fulfilled will not be fulfilled in the same literal way? Why, why do we just want to spiritualize everything that still pertains to the future? Right? So the issue is people hold to differing viewpoints as, as far as interpretation is concerned, and that's how they come to different conclusions. All right, now, I probably said just enough to just make everybody wonder, all right, uh, What's he, what's he talking about? Okay. All right, so just where we looked at last week, we we're talking about the foundation of biblical prophecy. The foundation of biblical prophecy. So there are some foundational truths that we really need to grasp when it comes to prophecy. And I gave you two or three of these and then several subpoints. They're not on your study guide tonight, but I'll just review really quick. It's foundational first that we realize the immense practicality of prophecy to our lives as believers. You may not realize this, but prophecy is intended to be very practical. I know that goes against everything that we've heard, and a lot of times we want to avoid prophecy because it seems so, you know, not very practical for the issues that I'm dealing with in my life currently. But the issue is my behavior today is really affected by what I know and what I believe about tomorrow. And so prophecy is intended to give you confidence in the God who saved you. And when you live with confidence in the God who saved you, then guess what that does as far as the everyday issues that you deal with in life? It helps you get through those. It helps you respond to crises with patience and long-suffering. You don't have to worry. You don't have to live a life full of anxiety because prophecy is intended to remind me of the truth that my God is in perfect control. And when I see prophecy that's already been fulfilled, 
That just builds confidence in my life. I have greater confidence in God's prophetic word. So it's immensely practical. Uh, Several reasons for this. Uh, It's a major part of divine revelation. At least 27% of all the Bible is prophetic in nature. So above 20, I mean, think about that. That's a large percentage of your Bible that's prophecy. So are we just to skip over that? (laughs) Or are we to be good students of God's word and seek to understand it through the aid of the Holy Spirit? Uh, And then consider how special blessing is promised to those who study prophecy and pay attention to what it says. The Apostle John says that there's a specific promise attached to a study of revelation. Blessed is the one who reads out loud the words of this prophecy. And so just by studying and reading the book of Revelation, this is different from any other book of the Bible in that this is the only place where we find this specific promise. There is a special blessing promised to the one who hears the words of this prophecy read and who obeys the words of this prophecy which means that God intends for you to understand the words of this prophecy. And that goes directly against so many who say, well, you really can't understand the book of Revelation. Well, don't tell the Apostle John that. And don't tell the Holy Spirit that. Because it's evident from the opening verses that this is intended for us to be, uh, it's intended to be understood. And then prophecy is practical because Jesus is the subject of prophecy. It points us ultimately to him. And as those who love him, as disciples who are following him, we want to, we want to know prophecy as it points us to Jesus Christ. Something else that it does practically is that it gives us proper perspective in life. And in that way, it provides us with hope, confidence, assurance, And yet prophecy, another reason it's practical, it's a tool for evangelism. You know, people are talking today about the end of all things, perhaps maybe more so than ever before. A lot of people have questions, and man, God's people have an opportunity to be able to speak words of comfort and words of truth to those who are looking for answers. And then prophecy motivates us to live godly lives and light of eternity it's not just for the sake of filling our head full of facts but rather to fill our heart full of faith and then prophecy reveals the sovereignty of God over time and history which means he is in perfect control okay so that's why it's practical all right now a second foundational principle uh, we need to remember the interpretive principles behind a study of prophecy. And I've already alluded to this a little bit. One of the primary issues when it comes to understanding prophecy, it's the method of interpretation that one uses. And we call this hermeneutics. And someone say, herma what? <laughs> hermeneutics. And that's a word that comes from a Greek word, hermeneuo, which means <clears throat> to, to interpret, uh, to expose, or to explain It's a word that's used at least three times in the New Testament in that way. And so the basic principles of interpretation that one uses will lead to some conclusions about what a specific 
passage means. And whether we realize this or not, every time we read the Bible, we use some method of hermeneutics. Because we want to get at the meaning of the biblical text. Now let me ask you this question. Are there multiple shades of meaning within a biblical text? Or is there really one spirit-intended, spirit-inspired meaning? What, what, what the goal of hermeneutics is to get at the meaning of the text as it was inspired and originally given to that intended audience, the original audience. Which means that I don't read a passage of scripture and in some way I read meaning into that scripture that's not there. We don't allegorize it or spiritualize it. And so this is why I believe that the best method for interpretation is is a method simply known as the historical grammatical method. And I think a consistent use of the grammatical historical method of Bible interpretation as you read the scripture from cover to cover with that consistent way of reading it, it's going to lend itself to the dispensational premillennial viewpoint as far as prophecy is concerned. Because you're not going to try to spiritualize or allegorize those Old Testament promises to Israel and say, well, I know that the last several chapters of Ezekiel is talking about some future temple that hasn't been built yet and the dimensions are there but all that's got to just symbolically apply to the church. No, it's far too specific for us to spiritualize away and rationalize like that. So I think that understanding that historical, grammatical, you know, interpretation of the biblical text is key. Now, context, reading something in context you know, that grammatical, historical method it understands context. So, so much of interpretation is contextual. Now let me ask you this question. How many of y'all have found yourself between a rock and a hard place in your life and you needed a decision and you came to God's word and you treated it like it was a magic eight ball? You know, you know, remember the eight ball? You shake, you say yes or no answer. And you came to your Bible and said, man, oh, do I take that job? Do I don't take that job? I'm shaking my Bible. Lord, whatever passage it opens up to, and you read it, it says, Judas went out and hung himself. And you're like, ah, that's not helpful at all. <laughs> uh, you shake it again. <laughs> and then you read the scripture, it says, now go thou and do likewise. You know, so that's not reading and studying in context, right? But we know that the scripture, as we're students of God's word, as we spend time in God's word, God's word, you know, tells us how to process major decisions in our lives. Which is why it's important that we spend time in God's word on a regular, consistent basis, day in and day out, and allow the Holy Spirit to, to speak into our hearts. And so we're not just reading it and dissecting it like it's some kind of, you know, simple textbook. But this is, this is God's inspired word, and the author is present within you. Who, he lives within you as a believer. And part of the role of the Holy Spirit is to lead us into all truth. So those interpretive principles. Now, Dr. Mark Hitchcock, who's a prophecy scholar, he mentioned several of these. And again, I mentioned these last Wednesday night. I'm just going to go through them quickly. Uh, interpret prophecy literally. 
Not wooden literalism, but literally, meaning that even that which is symbolic, where there are symbols, and we know Revelation is full of symbols. You've got symbolic numbers and symbolic beasts. Yet, even when symbolism is used, this points to some future literal fulfillment or reality. Okay, so again, using that grammatical, historical, hermeneutic will lend itself toward interpreting prophecy literally. Let me just kind of make it plain. The plain sense of Scripture. Just let the text say what the text says. Just let it say what it says. And then a second principle for interpretation, for symbols, often we need to look for the built-in interpretation. Because in many, many places, you'll discover that certain symbols... If you read the whole passage, the whole context, there's usually an explanation for the symbolic language somewhere in the text. We see this in Revelation chapter 1 with the vision that John has of the risen Jesus and all of his glory, with the seven stars in his hand, he's walking among the lampstands, and, and, and so the symbolism's there. We're told that the seven lampstands, this refers to the seven churches of Asia, The seven stars, this refers to the seven messengers of the churches. You see the same thing in Daniel, and I'll show you that in here in just a minute. And then number three, compare parallel passages, and that's really what we're going to do tonight. So we come to the book of Revelation, not simply isolating the book of Revelation from everything else, you know, the other 65 books of the Bible. We come to the last book of the Bible, the last book of the biblical canon, the last book inspired, included in the canon, and yet we understand that there's Old Testament prophecy pointing to the end. So much of Daniel does that. We know what Jesus has said in, in, in you know, certain passages about the end. We know what the Apostle Paul has mentioned about Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We bring all of this to bear upon the biblical text that we come to here in Revelation. And so you compare Scripture with Scripture. And Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. And then, especially when you're dealing with prophecy, keep the time intervals in mind. I showed you this briefly last week. I'll really show it to you tonight. And five, distinguish between fulfilled and unfulfilled prophecy. Now, Daniel, when it was written, when Daniel was given visions of the future, all of it was future to Daniel. And yet now we, we look back on history and we see that so much of it has already been fulfilled. The progression of world empires... The only thing yet to be fulfilled is that final world empire, the empire of Antichrist. And that's the empire that's being described in these chapters that we'll get into in Revelation in the coming weeks. So, prophecy, it's foundational. You've got to realize the practicality of it. Remember how it's interpreted. And then, a third foundational principle, remember the important passages. Remember the important passages. Okay? And so really this, this is kind of where we'll, we'll spend the rest of our time tonight. And as far as Revelation is concerned, there are at least, I don't know, three major passages outside of Revelation that I believe help you understand and even unlock the meaning and the content 
of what we find in this last book of our Bible. So Daniel is where we'll begin, the book of Daniel. Now, your Bible should just naturally open to the book of Daniel after spending nearly a year in it last year, if you've been with us on Sunday mornings. Um, Daniel's one of the most beloved books of the Old Testament. Every child who's been in a Sunday school class knows a thing or two about, you know, the fiery furnace and Daniel in the lion's den. And so, so many of the Bible stories that we're so familiar with come from these chapters in the book of Daniel. And yet, there's much more to the book of Daniel than just the simple stories that we read in this passage. Because Daniel is one of the most strategic passages in the Bible that describe the events of the last days. And so, in terms of purpose, you could say that Daniel is both prophetic as well as practical. And by the way, the Bible always makes a a connection between prophecy and living a godly life. Now, let me tell you something. If prophecy and a study of it doesn't lend itself to to a pursuit of a godly life, then you're totally missing the point of studying prophecy. Daniel is a rare individual in Scripture in that there is absolutely nothing negative said about the man anywhere in the Bible. Now, is that to say that he was a perfect man? Was he sinless? We know he wasn't. Even Daniel's confessing sin in Daniel chapter 9, confessing the sins of his people, even though the Bible doesn't record any specific sin associated with Daniel's life. So here you have a godly man, a picture of a godly man, and he's a man to whom God reveals sort of the grand sweep of history, leading all the way up from Daniel's time, going all the way up to the coming of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom upon the earth. So God reveals his prophetic program to Daniel. Now, as far as the prophecy in Daniel is concerned, there are five major sections in the book that reveal God's prophetic program for the world. You've got Daniel 2, which records a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had in which he saw a statue or a multi-metallic man. Then you've got Daniel chapter 7, which is a vision that God gives specifically to Daniel. It was a vision of four beasts that represent future kingdoms. Chapter 8 is a detailed section that relates to Persia and Greece. Chapter 9, you've got the prophecy of 70 weeks. And then chapters 10, 11, and 12, this is a final vision of the latter days. So in those prophetic sections, God gives Daniel information about the future that came through a vision or an angelic messenger that was sent to him And again, at the time they were originally given, all of these prophecies were future to Daniel. But some of them have already been fulfilled, such as those prophecies concerning Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, Greece, Rome. And yet there's still a lot that's future as it relates to the empire of the Antichrist, which will be some revived version of ancient Rome. Okay? So I'm going to boil that down to three passages in Daniel that are really indispensable when it comes to understanding the end times. And it's critical, I believe, to the accurate interpretation of the book of Revelation. So the first two of these passages, you've got Daniel 2, and then you've got Daniel 7. I'll get to that in a second. And this really forms the heart of the book. 
So Daniel chapter 2, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. Daniel 7, the vision that God gives Daniel about coming world empires. These chapters really outline an era of history that Jesus refers to as the times of the Gentiles. And he makes that statement in Luke chapter 21, verse 24. What are the times of the Gentiles? Well, it's the time frame in which Jerusalem is going to be under Gentile dominion. Where the kingdom is, 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 is not in possession of, you know, Israel's not in possession of it, but the Gentile nations of the world are in possession of it. That's the time of the Gentiles. The time of the Gentiles begins when Israel's carried into captivity, and it's going to lead all the way up until the second coming of Jesus. So Daniel chapter 2, this is often called the ABCs of Bible prophecy. Now, you, you turn there if you want to in your Bible. I'm not going to read all of it. I've preached this. You can read this. I imagine you've read it, you've marked it up, you've made notes. But just by way of summary, this contains the first most basic outline of the times of the Gentiles as Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that involves this statue made up of four different types of metals. Now, sometimes pictures are helpful, so I'm going to throw a picture up here on the screen behind me. That's an imposing dude, huh? But in the, the biblical text, in the dream, the head was made of gold. The chest, the arms are silver. The belly, the thighs are made of bronze. The legs are made up of iron. The feet are a mixture of iron and clay. Now, when you read that, what's the first thing that ought to just sort of stand out to you about that? From top to bottom, what happens as far as the quality of the metal is concerned? Yeah. So let me ask you this question. Are the kingdoms of man getting better? <laughs> well, that sounds totally opposite to what we hear so many of our politicians telling us these days, right? Hey, we're building back better, baby. <laughs> Uh-oh, I'm going to get in trouble. Well, not according to Bible prophecy. That very well may be the mantra of Antichrist. We're better than everyone else who's come before us. We know how to do it. So here you have this image. The head's gold, the chest, the arms are silver, the belly, the thighs are bronze, the legs are iron, the feet, iron clay mixture. But in the dream, this is what Nebuchadnezzar sees. Okay, He sees a stone that's cut out of a mountainside. It crashes into the image and smashes it to smithereens. Now, I'm going to give you something. I want to, if I can just get a couple of volunteers to help me tonight, just pass out just a little bit more. We killed a few more trees tonight to make sure you have some of these charts. Guys, would you do this for me? I've got front and back here, but I've, I've sort of got a summary of this, what you see on the screen, a, a summary chart form of the multi-metallic man that you see in Daniel chapter 2. But in the dream, the stone cut out of a mountainside, but not by human hands, it crashes into the image at the feet and smashes it to pieces. 
Okay? So you see that. There's, that's depicted there in that picture. Imagine what this must have been like, what this would have looked like in that dream. Well, then the wind begins to blow the pieces away, but the stone that shattered the image becomes this massive mountain that fills the entire earth. And as Daniel interprets the dream for the king, he says that the four different metals in the image represented Gentile world empires that would rule over Israel in succession. And the stone that destroys the statue at the, at the feet, thereby bringing the whole thing down, this represents the second coming of Christ when he will destroy man's sinful rule and establish his everlasting kingdom. And the fact that the stone becomes a mountain filling the earth, this is a picture of Messiah's worldwide kingdom that will replace the fallen kingdoms of man. And I believe if you want a picture of what that looks like, many of the prophets describe this. Isaiah describes it. Ezekiel describes it. Revelation chapter 20 describes that thousand-year reign of Christ and what it will involve. And so this is, this is really foundational for understanding sort of the progression of history from Daniel's day all the way up until our current, our current time. Now, if you've got this little, this little chart here with the man on it, You've got the references. The image is described, Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 through 33, with the interpretation that Daniel gives to Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, verses 36 through 38, Daniel says that the head of gold, this, this was symbolic of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Daniel says, you are the head of gold, O king, which by the way, kind of wonder, if you ever wonder why this fellow wants to... Uh, What Nebuchadnezzar does in the next chapter, he has a massive golden statue of himself built, demands everybody to worship it. So this evidently went to his head. You're the head of gold. You can get my humor later on, okay? But but the chest, the arms of silver, these represent the Medes and the Persians who overtook Babylon and then received the kingdom. The belly of bronze, this, this is the Greek kingdom of Alexander. The legs of iron, this is Rome. You can't help but think of the iron legions of Rome when you, when you read of the iron legs of this particular image. And then the feet and the toes made up of iron and clay. These are going to represent both the strong and weak governments of the end times. Some form of revived some revived version of of Rome, a a confederation of Western nations. The number of toes, there are 10, that's significant. Later on in chapter 7, the beast, the fourth beast that Daniel sees that corresponds with this is going to have 10 horns. The beast that John describes in Revelation chapter 13, which refers to the empire of Antichrist, it's also characterized by 10 horns. Out of those ten horns, which are ten kings, there is a little horn, Daniel says, that will emerge. And the little horn, this is the Antichrist. All right, so that's Daniel 2. Again, what you need to know about it, the stone, this is Jesus. And the stone that grows into a mountain, this is the kingdom of Jesus. 
Which, by the way, when you understand that, this will probably add all new meaning to you when you read uh, what Jesus said in Matthew uh, chapter 21, verse 42, have you not read in the scriptures that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Now listen to this. Jesus says, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What do you think Jesus is referring to there? He's referring to himself. He is the smiting stone. He is the fulfillment of this this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has and Daniel's interpreting. God's showing them the, the way that human history is going to go and how it's going to play out. Ultimately, it's going to culminate in the coming of Jesus Christ, the stone that's going to absolutely obliterate the fallen sinful kingdoms of man. But it's going to happen at the end of time, the end of history. Okay? Now, that's Daniel 2. Flip over a few chapters to Daniel 7. I'll summarize it quickly. Daniel 7, Daniel's given a night vision. And in this particular vision, he sees four beasts emerge from the sea. The first is described as a winged lion. The second is described as a bear raised up on one side. The third is a four-winged leopard. And the fourth is a terrifying beast that's described as having iron teeth and ten horns. Daniel then sees another little horn appear among the ten horns, replacing three. And then in chapter 7, the vision gives way to a throne room scene as Daniel sees the Ancient of Days sit down to judge, attended by millions of angels. Which, by the way, that should bring back to your memory what John has seen in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. That heavenly throne room scene. Okay, then the fourth beast is killed as well as the little horn with it. And Daniel says that he sees someone that he describes as a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven who appears and approaches the ancient of days and is given authority. He's given an everlasting dominion and he's given a kingdom that will never be destroyed. This is Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14. You can read it right there. Now, when you lay these two passages of Scripture side by side, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, you'll see that they cover basically the same ground, yet from two different perspectives. One view is from the world. That's Nebuchadnezzar's view in chapter 2. The other view is from heaven. And this is the vision that Daniel's given. How is it that Nebuchadnezzar sees these empires. Well, he sees a strong man, doesn't he? How is it that he sees the governments of man? He sees a strong image of a man, himself being gold, going all the way down to the feet of iron clay mixture. But when God looks at the kingdoms of men, what does he see? He sees some freaky beasts. Beasts. Corruption. Is there a perfect kingdom? Has man ever come up with the perfect kingdom? Or has everything that man had touched corrupted because of the impact of sin, the influence of sin? 
So what you see in chapter 7 then, these are those Gentile world empires, but from heaven's point of view. Dwight Pentecost says it this way, uh, whereas in Daniel 2, the course of world empire, this is viewed from man's perspective. In Daniel 7, the same course of empire is viewed from the divine point of view. Where the empires are seen, not as an attractive and glorious image, but as four wild, voracious beasts which devour and destroy all before them and consequently are worthy of judgment. How has man vied for dominion throughout his days? Through bloodshed, through murder, through conquest, pillage and plunder. So you put these two chapters together. When you do that, the prophetic picture becomes more clear. Now, on the back side of this chart, you turn that over, I've given you two more charts, but the the top half of the back page, here's just a simple chart that sort of lays side by side the contents of Daniel chapter 2 to the left of the page, the contents of Daniel chapter 7 to the right of the page, and then right there in the middle, that shows you how those are fulfilled. And what those symbols ultimately point to and how they were fulfilled in history in terms of Gentile world powers and how it all points, notice there, it's pointing to the end of history, some future confederation of nations that will emerge out of what once was Rome that will be headed up by Antichrist. Now, let me ask you this question. You know, the United States, you think about us as a country, we're a Western-style democracy. You think about European democracies, Western-style democracies. Ultimately, you know, think about how so many of those nations, even our own system of government, the republic. You go to Washington, you look at the monuments, you look at the buildings, you see the architecture, the language as far as Senate. All of that harkens back to Rome, does it not? Because that's largely how the West, in the wake of the, you know, the, the downfall of the Roman Empire, so many of the Western nations, and even, even monarchy, like the British crown, patterns itself after Rome and Rome's emperors and all of that. So you see very much the remnants of Rome all throughout the Western world. Now, I'm going to venture into just some interesting ground for just a second. World leaders begin getting together talking about world problems and how to solve world problems. You got the movers and shakers in Davos, Switzerland talking about how to solve the world's financial problems. You've got COP26 last week talking about how to solve the political, the, the, the climate crisis and how the number one issue that's staring humanity in the face is climate change and the governments of the world, in particular the Western governments of the world, have got to do something about this. We've got to unite. You add to that the fascination with Marxist, socialist ideas that are engulfing the Western world. And men and women, I'm just simply saying that the enemy knows that his days are numbered. Human history is going to go the route that God has determined. Man may think he rules, but let me tell you something. God always overrules. He always overrules. 
So the times of the Gentiles then began with Babylon, 605 B.C., culminating 586 B.C. when they totally destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. All of the Jews are carried away into captivity. Nebuchadnezzar did that in three waves beginning in 605 B.C. Babylon's followed up by the Persian Empire that replaced Babylon in 539 B.C. The Persians were then overthrown by Alexander and the Greeks somewhere along the lines of 334 to 331 B.C. Greece is succeeded by Rome, which lasted roughly until 476 A.D. And you know the history of the Roman Empire, the split between West and East. Daniel 2, Daniel 7 seem to identify Rome with the iron of this fourth beast. But the ten horns in Daniel 7 that are described, you can read this later. Nowhere has that ever corresponded with anything that's happened in history. And yet, Daniel 7.24 says that the ten horns on that fourth beast, they're symbolic of ten kings, and yet these ten kings have not yet existed. Now, John's going to talk about this in Revelation 13 when we get there, to talk about how somehow this confederation of Western nations headed up by ten kings are ultimately going to give their power and rule with one hour with the Antichrist. That's the little horn that Daniel's talking about. So this is why many prophecy scholars see this as some future version of Rome that's going to be reunited in the last days, ultimately spearheaded by Antichrist. His rule is going to be short-lived because it's going to be terminated when the Son of Man appears and he comes to establish an everlasting kingdom which will never be destroyed. Now, the third passage. Well, by the way, let me look at, that's that chart right there. Forgot that I threw that on the screen too, as if you could read that. (laughs) But you've got it in your notes. The third passage is chapter 9, verses 24 and 27. Now, again, these are three critical passages in Daniel that I really believe are absolutely foundational if we want to understand how to best interpret what Revelation is talking about. And so with that in mind, this is where I'll pick up next week, okay? That's where we'll pick up next week, the 70 weeks. What are the 70 weeks? Well, I preached three sermons from that in Daniel chapter 9 when we dealt with this over a year ago. These are prophetic weeks of years, 77s, as it would relate to the future that God had in mind for Israel. This is revealed to Daniel. And the 70th week is the seven-year tribulation period, that same period that I believe the Apostle John begins describing in Revelation chapter 6, going all the way through Revelation chapter 19. Let's stand as we pray tonight. Earl Palmer is a prophecy scholar, but he made a statement about the fact that there's a special blessing promised to those who study Revelation and who study prophecy in particular. 
But that word blessed that John uses in Revelation 1, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, Earl Palmer says it's a word that doesn't express superficial sentiment, but the rugged and tested assurance that it's a good thing to be walking in the pathway of God's will. And you think about the way the world is headed, the times in which we live. Folks, listen, isn't it a good thing to know that you're walking in the pathway of God's will? Oh, may God empower us, fill us with his spirit, and use us as his witnesses. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. And there's so much, Lord, that we don't understand. And so, Lord, we approach this study of revelation with humility in our hearts, but with gratitude and confidence that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we're a part of a kingdom, Lord, that cannot be shaken. When all around us, as far as man's sinful kingdoms, are shaken, and where the graveyard of history is littered with the corpses of kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. How blessed it is, Lord, for us to know that we're a part of the kingdom of Christ. And Jesus is coming. And Lord, may we get up in the morning, Lord, with just a renewed sense of vigor and enthusiasm, knowing that our God is the God of history. Lord, may we be intentional witnesses for Christ's sake. Lead our families. Devote our homes to you, Lord. To serve, to give, to look for opportunities, Lord. We can point people in our neighborhood and people we work with to point them to Jesus. Because that's why you've left us here, Lord. So take these truths tonight, Lord. Seal them up in our hearts. Bring confidence and assurance Deep within our spirits, it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.